Well, good evening. It's good to be with you guys tonight uh, for, sadly, our last Wednesday night until fall. So we have to take a little break. Um, <clears throat> it is a long break. I know. It is. Couple things. One is hopefully, if you didn't pick up the communion elements, uh, we always take communion at the end. Feel free to get up during the service and go grab those and have them with you because we'll just transition to a time of communion uh, uh, toward the end of the service. Um, calling your attention to something on the back of the bulletin this coming up Sunday is a training that my friend Mackenzie Matthews, many of you will, will know Mackenzie, that she's gonna be putting on on Sunday morning from 10 to 11. One of the, one of the passions that Mackenzie has is for, for people to be able to fulfill 1 Peter 3.15, which says always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and with respect. And, and so, um, as I've been in conversations with her, I've heard her heart, you know, she's oftentimes said, everyone has a story, but not everyone is, has been trained to like, can I tell it? And I don't mean a 45 minute sermon. I mean, can I give it in like four minutes, in like eight minutes? And if, if, if God would ever give you an opportunity to share your faith, you being equipped and prepared, God won't let that go to waste. So I would encourage you to be there for that, just to learn how to do it. You don't have to get up and give a speech there. It's just learning how to share your faith. So hopefully you'll make, make the most of that. Um, tonight, as I mentioned, we're, we're gonna be concluding our culture wars and Christian ethics, what the Bible has to say about race, politics, gender, sexuality, and, and more. And, and um, I, hope, I hope that you've enjoyed this series, that you've uh, taken something away from it, or that it's at least uh, um, kind of started something new inside you, maybe. Um, tonight, here's what I would like to do. I wanna just make a few observations. I'm not gonna speak until the very end. I want us to stop a little early. And um, Pastor Donnie, kind of like what we did the other week when my friend Jeff was here and we talked about social media and that sort of thing. I would love to uh, field some questions from you guys. Now, I'm calling it question and response, not question and answer, because I may not give you an answer. <laughs> I'll give you a response. It may be like, hmm, good question. I'm not sure. But I would just love to hear from you guys, not just about tonight, but from this whole series, what are some questions that are kind of bubbling up inside you, learnings, takeaways, that sort of thing. And I asked Donnie too, I said, hey, Donnie, I would love for you to help me field any of those questions. Donnie's been a children's, was a children's pastor for many years, and so engaged with a lot of families and kids in dealing with those issues. And um, also, if you have any questions about Elvis or baseball, he is your guy. So you can ask those too. I, don't, I think only, only Elvis would intersect with the sexuality piece. I don't think baseball would. But um, So anyway, any questions that you might have as we go, feel free to uh, jot, those, jot those down. Um, as I mentioned, I just want to kind of make some observations about specifically sexuality in light of eschatology. You know what eschatology is? That's the big fancy sounding word. For, for thinking about what, what, what does God have planned for the final act, the eschaton, okay? What is it that everything is moving toward? 
It's not moving toward an end. It's not moving toward just merely a, a reboot like in pantheism where everything just starts circling over again. It's moving to, um, in, in, in Greek, what they call the telos, a, a, a point, like a target, an intended completion, a culmination. And so how does where things are culminating, in light of that, how ought we think of our sexuality? Does it impact? And I think it does. I think it has actually an enormous impact on that. Now, this is important because, you know, like doing these topics, I've come to the conclusion, this is my personal belief, that the, the two defining issues for Western civilization, for our culture, is cultural Marxism, we talked a little bit about that under critical race theory, and it comes under a lot of labels. I think the two defining issues and how the church responds to them at our moment is cultural Marxism and then the gender ideology, and I'm using that as a broad bucket to pull in a lot of this stuff. And the reality is cultural Marxism is leveraging gender ideology. So it, in one sense, they're kind of like this a little bit, but these are the, the issues of our day. And so for us to have some familiarity with them as believers is absolutely essential if we're going to be effective where God has placed us in our culture. So we need to develop, I'm gonna suggest, a theology of sexuality. You have to have a theology of sexuality. And I'm not gonna be able to paint a complete picture of that tonight. I wanna scratch the surface a little bit to, to think about this, this is the direction we need to be thinking in and the questions we need to be asking. Um, and so I would encourage you, you know, inside your bulletin, I think I gave you three different suggested readings. If, if you feel like you need to lean into it, and I'm telling you, you probably do, just pick one book or pick one of these authors, search for them on podcasts, on YouTube videos, get informed about the conversation and what's going on. These are trusted people that have been vetted. And you know what's cool is there's a growing number of resources out there that are helpful. The problem is there's also a growing number of resources out there that are not helpful, that are pushing people in, I think, directions that are ultimately anti-human anti-God as well. <clears throat> Let me give you a phrase. If you're going to write anything down tonight, this is sort of just a way to think about human beings. This, is, this was a phrase that sort of I, I just came up with as I'm thinking about what's the entry point into thinking about a, a theology of <clears throat> sexuality. Here it is. We are eternally wired for intimacy. We are eternally wired for intimacy, and we are temporarily programmed for sexual attraction. We are eternally wired for intimacy. Notice I'm making a distinction between these things. We are temporarily programmed for sexual attraction. Let me start with the first part of that. We are eternally wired for intimacy. Let me jump to a passage here. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. This is Genesis 1 and 2. We have the creation accounts. We have some groundwork laid for how we, are, how we ought to think about the human person 
and uh, what, what are they about? What are they for? And so we read in uh, Genesis 2, 18, then Yahweh God said, it's not good. Now, if you've read the previous part, he's never used this phrase, not good. He's only said, good, 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 repeat. So you're supposed to trip over this because <laughs> he, he's got a pattern, good, 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 and all of a sudden he's not good. And you're saying, wait, what? So you're supposed to stop. Your, your, your antenna is supposed to go up. Then Yahweh God said, it's not good that man should be in isolation, alone. I will make him a helper, and that phrase is key, fit for him. Think of a jigsaw. It will be fit for him. They will go together divinely orchestrated. And then down in verse 22, um, we see this language of... Uh, <clears throat> says, um, a rib... We talked about this earlier. This is actually not a rib. The word is side. It got translated rib a long time ago, and it just stuck because you, people would be weirded out if it says, and, and God took his side out of him. <laughs> the word always means side of half of yourself. It could be half of a mountain. It could be half of a car. It, but it always means the half of. God puts him into a deep sleep, and he has a vision in which Adam is torn apart. His side is removed from him, is what's being, it's, it's the exact same phrase that's used when Abraham is put into a deep vision and he sees the cauldron going through the fire. It's a sleep and a vision. It's the exact same word. Puts him to, to sleep. He has a vision of himself being torn apart. And then what does he, he see in it? His side was taken by Yahweh God from him and made into a woman and then brought her back to the man. That's why his poem sounds this way. This at last is bone of my bone. That could be a rib. Oh, he doesn't stop there. Flesh of my flesh. It's not just the bone. It's the side of me. <clears throat> brought back together. She's called woman because she was taken out of man and then brought back together. Right? In Christian weddings, many weddings, this is why we, what do we have the father of the bride do at the beginning? He brings her to the man. We're reenacting this. Every wedding you go to, you're watching this be reenacted. And so this is this idea that the man and the woman bond, the marriage, it's a divinely... Um, sculpted, divinely defined relationship. This is marriage. This is what marriage is. And it's not something that we invented or um, uh, created. We discovered. And I hope you know the difference between discovering something <laughs> that exists, and we can talk more about that if you want to in the, in the Q&A time, but... Um, <clears throat> So what are we created for? Big question. What are you created for? Here's a hint. It's the answer to when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember his answer? Love God with everything and love neighbor as self. That's what you're created for, according to the Bible. You're created to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, Jesus says, if you do that, 
all the other things that you're supposed to be doing, they just fall into place, <laughs> right? That's what we are created for. <clears throat> love God and love others. And we're temporarily, I said, programmed for sexual attraction. We're temporarily programmed for sexual attraction. Now, how is this temporary? Let's kind of dive into that a little bit. And what is the function of sexuality? What is it for? How is it supposed to function? I want to give you a couple different ideas of how it is supposed to function. Number one, it's procreative. It's to procreate. Uh, Genesis 1.26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, everything. They're going to have dominion over this area here. Verse 27, so God created him in his own image, in the image of God, he created a male and female. And here's the first command in the Bible. There's no command yet. The first command of the Bible is verse 28. And God, God blessed them and God said to them, here's the command, be fruitful, multiply. He's using the language that he used of the, tree, the, of the fruit trees. They were to be fruitful, if you remember, right? Using that of them. <clears throat> He's saying, essentially, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to cultivate it. Remember, we said culture comes from that. Do culture. <laughs> do it well. Do it under my authority. But I want you to procreate. There needs to be more of you than just these two. Number um, two, it's for procreation. Number two, it's for bonding. It's for bonding between two individuals at a, I would say, more than emotional level, certainly emotional, but it's emotional slash spiritual, some sort of a soul bonding or connection. And this is not just a romantic, oh, did, Brent, have you been watching the Hallmark Channel? No, I've been reading Paul. Um, <clears throat> Paul, who's not anything like the Hallmark Channel, when in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's writing to this very uh, morally suspect people group in Corinth, and he's saying, um, I'll just start in um, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15. He's talking about their bodies, their physical bodies, and he goes kind of all hallmarky here, you might think. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's saying just having sex with someone who you don't know or a stranger or whatever. Um, <clears throat> do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Ne never shall I do that. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute, and he borrows Genesis language here, becomes one flesh one body, that's the Genesis language that was used. With her, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, the reason I know he's not just saying, oh, all he's saying is you're having sex, because then he would be saying this, don't become one, don't become one flesh with a prostitute, because then you're one flesh with a prostitute. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> he's saying, don't have sex with a prostitute, because then you are this mystical thing of a blending of spirits. You are one flesh. He's interpreting the Genesis language, one flesh, as more than a physical act. He's interpreted as some sort of a soul meshing that goes on between two people. So number one, it's procreative. 
function of sex. It's number two, it's bonding at some sort of metaphysical level that goes beyond the physical hardware. <clears throat> number three, it is, and this is the most important one. This is the eschatological one. We used that word earlier. It is to point to something more real and more eternal than itself. It's to point to something more eternal and more real even, I would say more lasting than itself. Let me read for you Ephesians 5.32. So in this passage, Ephesians 5, he's talking about relation, familial relationships, wives, uh, husbands, parents, kids, and all this sort of thing. And he's saying uh, in verse 31, I'll start there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. This is all Genesis language that we read. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery, what's this mystery? This one flesh thing. This one flesh mystery, it's profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And here's what he's not saying. That kind of reminds me of that. <laughs> or that's kind of an interesting parallel. He's saying the purpose and the function of, of sexual union between one man and one woman is to point humanity to a future union in relationship. Let me, let me uh, use an illustration. This is, uh, I was reading a book this week and the, the author used, I, which I thought was, if you're 40 and older, I don't know, this will make sense to you, okay? If you're younger, track with me here. When you used to take pictures, not on your phone, <clears throat> but on a camera, and there was something inside called film, right? And it would get to the end, it'd click and you couldn't turn anymore. And you'd take that film, you'd put it in a little plastic holder, and you would take that to a place where they would develop your film. They would take it into a dark room, and then a couple days later, they would call you, your pictures are ready. You would go, and you'd pick up your pictures, and it was a little envelope, remember? You'd open up the envelope, and there's all your glossies there. But right in front of your glossies, in a little smaller area, what was that? Negatives, right? What are the negatives? There are these translucent images that if you, if you held up to the light, you could kind of make out the lines that, was, that, were, that are now on this print. Are you with me? So it's this translucent monochromatic negative that, it, is it the same image? Yeah, but it's not, it's not uh, completed, it's not printed, it's not, okay? This is what I would suggest. Paul's theology of marriage Marriages are the negatives. They're not eternal. They're not the final thing. They do point to the final print in that way. This was, this was a way she put it. I, I just love this language, so I'm quoting her. She said, marriage is a monochrome negative of a massive wall print. Isn't that cool? I thought that was beautiful. Marriage is a monochrome <coughs> Monochrome negative of a massive wall print. Here's the key. Here's the point. Marriage was never intended to be the 
end all relationship in the universe. Sexual engagement was never intended to be the height of relationships in this universe, how it's hardwired. Now, that's the exact opposite message that is being told by our culture. That is the end all. And if you get a real good one, that's your, that's your goal. No, that's a monochromatic negative. It's not bad. If you make it the end, you'll be so disappointed in things. What it is, is that it's, it's going to culminate, that little monochromatic negative, one day is going to be culminated in Christ and his people. That's Paul's theology. It might sound weird to us, <laughs> kind of is weird. It's kind of like metaphysical. What, what does that mean? Well, that's what Paul believes. That's what he gets from reading the scriptures. <clears throat> Marriage is intended to be a signpost to God's relationship with us. If you read the Old Testament prophets, do you know what they say more than anything else when, when Israel becomes unfaithful to God? They say, you're a prostitute. That's the image. This is not an illustration. <laughs> They're saying you're defying that in eschatological relationship that you have now in a, in a way that your marriages are supposed to point to but you're being sexually unfaithful to your God. And in fact, they get weirdly graphic, like stuff I probably wouldn't say in church when they explain what it is that Israel's done. It's almost pornographic, the language that they use because they want Israel to understand this. Now, here's the question. When Jesus comes on the scene, for instance, this is uh, an interaction where John the Baptist gets criticized because he's saying, um, Jesus' you know, followers, or Jesus, he's celebrating, he's partying. And John the Baptist answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness. And I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, he goes, that's me the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy is mine and is now complete. Jesus himself refers to himself as the bridegroom. Every time you hear Jesus talking about himself as the bridegroom, he's not giving an analogy. He means it more truly than actually seeing a bridegroom here. That's the wall print is what he's talking about. I'm the wall print. What you see, that's just the little negative. It's so much bigger even than that. Now, how do we know, this is maybe one question coming, how do we know this is temporary? It's not gonna go on. If you grew up in the LDS faith, the Mormon faith, you heard a very different message. If you're sealed for time and eternity in a temple, that marriage goes on forever. And there is celestial sex and pregnancy that goes on forever. That is, that's not the message of the Bible. That's, that's glorifying the negative and saying, I'm going to make this thing last, last forever. And we know that because Jesus himself was the one who said, in fact, let me jump over to it here. Jesus is having interaction. This is Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. Um, there's a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. 
Sadducees differ from all other religious groups and primarily in this, they only like the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They reject all the others. And the, the resurrection of the body, it's not talked a whole lot about. It might be assumed in a couple of passages. It's not as clearly taught as you have in the rest of the Torah. Like you get to Daniel, you know, the book of Daniel says one day everyone will rise from the dust, right? That's, we don't see that clearly in the first five. So they didn't accept the resurrection theologically. They said, no, once you die, you're, you're kind of worm food. That's it. This is all there is. And so they're trying to trip Jesus up. And they go like this. They say, you know, uh, let me give you a little, a little story, a little parable, Jesus. You like telling parables a lot, don't you? That's kind of your bag. Okay, how about this parable? There's a guy who gets married, and he dies, and according to Jewish law, it's called leveret marriage. His brother has to marry her in order to give her children. Well, before he can even give her children, he dies. Fortunately, he, he's in luck. she's in luck. There's a third brother. Third, he goes down this story, trying to trip him up. Who is the woman going to be married to in the resurrection? They don't really think there is one. They're trying to, you know, they want him to go, well, it's complicated. No, I'm not really sure who's going to be married to who in the resurrection. And Jesus' answer is this. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. And he gets a little snarky because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, humans, people, neither marry nor are given in marriage. But in this respect, he's saying, are like the supernatural beings who don't get married, who don't procreate one another. So Jesus is saying, that's not what's planned. In the resurrection, no one's married and no one is given in marriage. Now, one of the things, um, let, me, let me mention one cultural lie, okay? If this is true, this is a huge implication, that there's no sexual expression, sexual activity in the resurrection, okay? What, is, what does that do to this cultural lie right here? Your sexual desires are a reflection of your true authentic self. Do you see that? Do you see the problem? Your sexual desires are the expression of your authentic self, and if you don't express them, you're not you. You're not your authentic self. What's the problem with that? Well, for a believer, if that's true, that means for all eternity, you're not your authentic self. That's removed, that's taken away. So a, a, a Christian cannot embrace and believe the idea that your sexual expression, your sexual feelings is the real deep down you. Jesus blows that idea out of the water in this passage right here. The makeup of your sexual desires, it is not your authentic self. It's a temporary thing, as we talked about. <clears throat> now, before we get into, we'll, we'll do questions here. Just, I'll, I'll just read this last passage because I think it's always helpful. Many of you know C.S. Lewis is like one of my favorite, well, he's, he's my favorite thinker probably. And um, he, he's so good because he's brilliant, but he just puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so everyone can get them. And uh, he brings up the question that most of us kind of wonder, there's no sex in heaven? <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. Um, here's, here's what Lewis says. 
He says, the letter and spirit of scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. I mean, he's saying there's, there's no sexual expression that way in this sense. Um, and, uh, and this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else a perpetual fast. You're just kind of biting your tongue the whole time going, I can make it, I can make it. <clears throat> as regards to the fast, I think our present outlook might be like, listen, this, this, is, this is so good, might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you eat chocolate at the same time. Do you see the point? Little boy, there's going to be an experience that's going to be the best experience, uh, pleasure you'll have in life. And he immediately goes, oh, so we're, there's going to be chocolate involved? And you go, no, no. What? Unless you're George Costanza for any Seinfeld fans out there. <clears throat> On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of the chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position, Lewis writes brilliantly. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which, in new creation, will leave no room for it. Those negatives that we just think are so beautiful and important and wonderful, one day it's going to be a wall print. And you won't even miss the negatives. <laughs> That's the message of Scripture. That's how we need to think eschatologically about these issues of sex, human sexuality, that sort of thing. We don't have much time. I want to leave some time for Pastor Donnie, if you wouldn't mind grabbing one of the mics. Um, and we'll spend 10, 12, 15 at the most <clears throat> minutes. If you have a question, a, a thought about anything in this series, again, would love to hear that. I think others would even be, um, they might have that same question in their, in their mind. So um, please raise your hand and Donnie will run, run, run <clears throat> to you. Thanks, Pastor we got, Donnie. We got one here. I don't even need a mic because I have a loud voice. Okay. But I think, and this is not a question so much as it is a comment. I love the very first thing you said, that marriage is intimacy. And intimacy is a word that I think is probably one of the most beautiful words in the English language. As you know, I've been married three times because I've lost two husbands. And I'd like to think that God has provided me with a husband each time because of intimacy, not because of sex. I'm 74 years old. Okay, those of you who know by the time you're 74, <laughs> sex is not nearly as important as intimacy is. But intimacy cannot come any other way than through marriage. I love marriage, and I love the idea that my relationship with Christ and your relationship with Christ is meant to be 
an intimate relationship, just as our relationship is with our spouses. That's what I've, that's what I learned tonight. Hmm. I'll kind of fall with the, just as you're, as you're thinking, with a thought, a question that is oftentimes asked. I remember feeling this. I remember when I was a child, when I heard there's no marriage in heaven, my first thought was, oh my goodness, my mom and dad are going to be divorced. I mean, that was the feeling. <clears throat> and I thought, I, they won't even remember. Like, I'll walk in and be like, you guys used to, you guys used to be married and love, what, what? You know, like, snap out of it, kind of thing. Here's the reality. Your intimacy in new creation won't be less than marriage. It'll be more than marriage. You know what I mean by that? <clears throat> your intimacy with your spouse, let's say if you're married, will not be less than marriage. It's not removing that. It transcends it and it's greater. And I can't even wrap my mind around that. But that's, I think, the truth. Because all the things like selfishness and shame, they're all pulled out. <laughs> Can you imagine having a relationship with that person? It's not a sexual one, but when all, the, all those insecurities are gone, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. But that shame that was introduced in Genesis 3, they're naked, they feel shame, it's gone. All right, yeah, go ahead. over here. I don't mean this as a curveball, and I don't mean I don't expect you to hit a home run on this because it's hitting you cold. But um, one of the things that we've seen in the Ukraine-Russian conflict, and it is something that's starting to hit at some of the state policy levels that we will all probably face into the future, uh, at a policy level, and then it's a very sensitive personal question. Uh, what are your thoughts around the biblical perspective on surrogacy? On, on what? Surrogacy. Oh, surrogacy of? Of having children. Technically, we have, we have a technology that has never been on the face of the earth that allows procreation apart from Genesis 1 mm. of the design. And my guess is, it's already legal in a couple of states, and my guess is here in this state, it'll probably surface as well. And I'm not sure we're prepared as the church to evaluate the uh, policy aspect of that or the personal aspect that hits some couples. Are you thinking of like artificial wombs, that kind of idea? Sir? Artificial wombs, the uh, hiring of a womb mm, mm -hmm. in vitro that allows procreation yeah. from a technology standpoint that's, um, that's different than Genesis 1, mm -hmm. be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously without giving extremely concise answer, I think we need to be hyper-cautious with those sorts of practices. Just, just because we can do something doesn't mean we ought to do something. And those questions on, on ethicists always says, not can we do it, that's not the question. Ought we do this? Uh, is there human carnage? I mean, are, are my friends Bob and Don here tonight? Um, my friend Don works at an organization called Snowflakes. There are, I can't remember the name of it, or, or, or the number, like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of frozen, fertilized embryos. 
and they're, they're, they're in, uh, you know, they're frozen. And some have been that way for 30 years. Um, you know, that's a real ethical, moral issue if you believe life begins at conception. That means there are frozen human beings out there uh, in limbo. Uh, now, resurrection, I, I believe that'll, uh, for those who are there, uh, you know, they'll be resurrected. But that's an ethical question. So I think there's tons of ethical questions surrounding um, human life, the creation of it. Not, not much of a specific answer, I know, but we could chat more about it. So I just finished reading a book by Randy Alcorn on heaven. And in that book, he presents, um, like in heaven, married couples will have, you know, in the New Jerusalem, they'll have their own home and they'll be together like a married couple and for eternity. And um, families will be together and the people you're closest to will all be with you. Um, what, how does that fit in with Jesus's answer to the Sadducees? And how does people who've never been married or been divorced or don't have someone like that, that they can look forward to spending eternity with. How does that, how do they fit into that picture? Yeah, and I can't address Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. I've heard good things about it. I haven't, I haven't read it, but I, I, I think he runs into the problem of the Sadducees question, if, if that's the theology. Um, you've got problems. You can come up with these imaginary examples in your head. It's called a thought experiment that just blows it out of the water. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus here. So um, we are all together. We are family. We are the family of God. We're the body of Christ. So again, it's not that it's, not that it's less than marriage. It's more than marriage. And we're all family, uh, a part of a family business that God has been going for quite some time. And, you know, when we try to imagine it, I think we have to lean on Paul's words. No eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the imaginations of men what God has in store for those who trust him, who love him, who are called by his name. Can't even imagine, right? Someone should write a song like that, maybe. <laughs> um, so I, I try to be careful not to speculate too much. Um, but there are some... Uh, some clues in the Bible that I do like. <laughs> Any others? No racy questions. Thank you. <clears throat> One over here. Okay. Um, I First of all, I just wanted to say thank you because um, the things that you've talked about the last few weeks are really difficult. Um, they're difficult for me just as a believer in the world to try to like talk about with people because I feel so judgy. Like mm. this is, especially the gender topic is just very, very hard for me because I pretty much just want to love everybody and say, it's okay, it's okay. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to thank you for not being afraid to tackle the hard subjects. I think we all appreciate that a lot. Um, 
And I do wish that, I don't know, maybe at some point we could have more discussion about that because it's not going away. Um, I would like to have more tools. And I would just like to know as a believer, like how, especially a believer who has small children who are navigating this, so I can't just like sit out. I have to engage it on some level. How do we do that without coming across as so judgmental, which is what Christians are becoming known for more and more mm -hmm. as we stand up for what we believe, especially when there's children involved? Like, I would never want to hurt a child. I would never want my child to hurt a child. Um, and so we all, I think, want to be supportive of children. How do we do that when we believe that society is telling them lies? And Donnie, I don't know if you want to give any thoughts to any of these. Well, that's, that's a great one. I mean, I have children. three kids myself, and um, two of them are still in the home, and those two are high schoolers. And I have always uh, talked with my boys. My wife and I have always talked with our boys about sex from the time they were probably four years old. And, of course, we, always, uh, we also teach them God's word. And... Uh, you know, like what Brent has been covering over the last several weeks, God's word is very clear on uh, issues of sex and gender and all of that. So I think that, I think we can, it's uh, both and. We can do both. We can hold truth, hold uh, fast to the truths of God's word, um, and also love people who uh, take a different point of view from us. And uh, my, my, uh, my youngest is a freshman over at Rocky. And uh, there's a lot of classrooms over there that have the, the gay flag hanging in the classroom. And um, back in the fall, they had a transgender woman in fishnet stockings come to the school and twerk and take questions about uh, transgenderism and all those things. So my son came home, and we just simply talked about all of that stuff. So to, to answer your question, Joanna, I think that um, the challenge is that we can love people no matter who they are while also standing on the, on the truth of God's word. My kids are grown, so I'm not in your situation, Joanna, but I have grandkids, and that's the uh, real burden of my heart. I'm not, my kids, I feel, are pretty solid. My grandkids is what I really have a heart for. And I guess, I, this is taken off on what Pastor Donnie said, I mean, Jesus was the epitome of truth and love, and we all know that. Uh, in our humanness and emotion, it really gets difficult. We can talk with our kids and never um, cut that relationship or fail to uh, in any way uh, skirt an issue. Uh, we need to do that. With other people, uh, the one thing that is, uh, has been most meaningful to me in the last two years is a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We don't have to live by lies. We don't have to uh, attack someone. We don't have to affirm 
But we don't have to live by lies. Even if it's to simply get up in a school board meeting and walk out. Uh, we don't have to shout. We don't have to come across as condemning and judgmental. But we don't have to sit there and listen to lies. And I think if we learn in the midst of the culture to do that, to, uh, to love, but we don't have to live by something that's not true. Yeah, that's good. You know, one of the things that I would just add to that is <clears throat> I found for myself the more informed I am about a topic, the least defensive and angry I am when it's challenged. Like when I don't know something, I mean, I don't know the why, but I believe it, and someone challenges me, I'm defensive and angry, and I, I tend to, when I'm really familiar with something and someone challenges it, I'm like, let's have a conversation. I'm not worried about it being, oh, maybe I, I am believing something that's silly or closed-minded or narrow-minded or bigoted or homophobic or whatever. So learn, <laughs> press in, read, listen. You'll find the more you do, the more comfortable you are the kinder you will be uh, as you have conversations about it. How about let's take one more question right here. Linda, you only get one question a night. But you know me, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> In reference to what you said, I want to just respond the way I'm thinking these days. And sometimes I do think a little different, perhaps. But I have two grandchildren, a 19-year-old grandson and a 17-year-old granddaughter and they're right in the midst of throes. They were raised in a very Christian home. In fact, their father's a pastor. And I'm a firm believer in raise up your children and they will remain. And I don't know exactly the terminology, but you know what I'm talking about. And I, and I look at these two kids and my grandson showed up on Easter with some wild looking colored hair and my granddaughter has two tattoos. But in discussion, my grandson said, you know, Nana, he said, I live by what God said in the Bible. Love your God with all your heart and love everyone else as much as you love yourself. And he said, that's what I live by. And I've seen that repeatedly with these kids. That when I was describing my granddaughter, I said, she loves the unlovable. She hurts for the hurting. And so these kids were raised in her home where Jesus was king, where Jesus is king. There's still, that's part, you can't take that away from them. And I don't worry about them one bit. Yeah, his wild hair will change. The tattoos, I have a tattoo too, what can I tell you? But I think raise them upright, answer their questions with truth, and it'll be there. It, it, it doesn't go away. I. I have two daughters who I raised, and they've raised good kids. So God bless you, babe. It'll work. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, let's just do one, one more, and then we probably need to wrap it up. Uh, Brent, as you know, we, we've been going to some classes at uh, Foundations Church, and I've got it for four weeks. And they went, went into depth about a lot of things that are presently going on, and they're also working on formulating things we can do. If you have any interest in that, contact Winsome Ministries Foundations Church. They're very active. They're very uh, open to, to getting things organized so we can actually do something about it. Thank you.
Thank you, Roger. You guys, thank, thanks for, I know this can be a little awkward to, you know, ask a question of big groups, so thanks for doing that. And um, like I said, ho hopefully this has been something that's um, been useful, and if nothing else, has maybe equipped you to take some more steps, you know, to learn a little bit more. To, um, and I would say just, do, just be faithful. Um, sorry, let me start over. This can be overwhelming, right, when you think, like, how do I, what do we do with the culture? That's overwhelming. Don't ask that question. <laughs> um, ask the question, what's right in front of me? What is one small thing I can do? If you have a child at home, I'm gonna disciple this child. If, if you can get onto a school board, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run for that, that you know, position. If you can have a conversation with a coworker about an issue, over a long, probably long period of time, work on that conversation or that relationship. Just do the small thing that's in front of you. You know, as someone once said, just do the next right thing. <laughs> and let God worry about the culture and where it's all going and consequences. Otherwise, it's just overwhelming. So that would be my advice. Think of one thing. Maybe your one thing is I'm gonna read a book. Good. Just think of one thing and do it and see what God, God was able to multiply a couple fish and, and some loaves. Maybe he can multiply that one book you read, that one election you run for, the one whatever. He seems to be good at that. So just try that. Amen?